0: Welcome to the Voices of the River podcast, presented by Blood of the West.
1: All right. Uh, So I want to welcome you to the first episode of the Voices of the River podcast. Uh, I am J.R. Robinson. I'm the director of Blood of the West and the host for this podcast, uh, which is basically my way of sharing the interviews that I've done so far for the project. Uh, before we get to the interview, I did want to touch on a few things that I am looking at at the moment uh, in regards to the documentary and telling the story. Um, I'm going to try to do this with each episode, just sort of dive through a few sort of current events that are going on in and around the watershed that have just sort of caught my eye and maybe worth diving into for the documentary down the line.
0: And now... Here are five things we're watching in the watershed today. 1. The Green River.
1: So, uh the first thing that I've noticed is um over on the Green River, you know, the state of Wyoming has a Select Water Committee set up through its state legislature, and in November it's backed a proposal for roughly 281 million dollars for water development in the state. Now, within this proposal, Uh, by the Select Water Committee, Uh, roughly $25 million uh, was set aside for an expansion of Fontenelle Dam and Reservoir on the Upper Green River. Uh, The Green River, of course, is the largest tributary in the Colorado system and uh, the most significant in terms of the amount of water that it contributes to the system. Uh, Fontenelle Dam is one of many earthenwork dams that were built in the 1960s and is now uh, showing a lot of Uh, signs of aging, and um, is possibly a threat to uh, fail within the next uh, however many years. Uh, It was built primarily in the 60s to store water for future use in Wyoming, uh, as well as to allow Wyoming to meet its requirements um, within the Colorado River Compact. And, And should the population require it, Uh, It was uh, set aside to allow for expansion of population in Wyoming. Uh, It also was built to mitigate flood damage uh, to the town of Green River, which was downstream. Uh, The bill would not only shore up and solidify the dam itself, but it would expand storage within the reservoir considerably and create a larger lake and impound more water for future development. And, And that use may or may not be needed. So something I'm looking at there. Um, Fonnell is the northernmost dam on the Colorado River system. Its presence has created a significant environmental impact uh, downstream uh, including the reduction of high prairie wetlands habitat that's crucial in the high desert environment of Western Wyoming. So I will include a link to an article in the Casper Tribune um, which talks a bit, a bit about this this plan but, It is something that the state of Wyoming is looking at.
0: Two, the continental divide.
1: The second thing I'm looking at at the moment is some stuff going on in relation to the upper grand, uh, the headwaters of the Colorado River itself. Um, Over in Nebraska, uh, Governor Pete Ricketts is seeking $500 million from the state legislature to build a canal on the South Platte River uh, in the state of Colorado, actually. He's looking to actually use eminent domain to go into the state of Colorado, build a canal that will funnel water from the South Platte in Colorado to Nebraska for development in that state. While it's not directly within the Colorado watershed, the South Platte does receive a massive influx of water from Trans Mountain diversions in the Colorado River headwaters. Uh, particularly the Grand Ditch and the Colorado Big Thompson Project, amongst others. Increased calls on waters from the South Platte on the east side of the Rockies could lead to more demand from the Colorado River on the west side of the Rockies. Uh, Basically, um, it is compounding an already existent problem in the state of Colorado uh, in terms of these diversions that pull water from the west side of the state to the east side of the state. So something worth looking out for there. Again, I'm including a link to an article uh, that will, I believe it's from a Nebraska newspaper called the Journal Star, and I'll include that in the show notes.
0: Three, the Ute people.
1: The third thing that I'm kind of keeping my eye on right now is uh, the continued fight by the Ute tribe to uh, regain their water and land rights in eastern Utah and um, western Colorado. In December, a federal judge dismissed most of the claims in a massive lawsuit that the Ute tribe had filed against the U.S. government. The lawsuit sought to regain sovereignty for the Ute people over a large section of eastern Utah uh, that was part of a treaty with the Uncompahgre Band after it was removed from its ancestral homelands in Western Colorado. The dismissal follows an earlier dismissal of a similar lawsuit in September, which aimed to preserve the Ute people's water rights. The Ute tribe has said it will continue to fight to regain its rights to its ancestral lands and waters. Uh, A lot of what this comes down to um, from what I've been able to research and particularly on the water side of things, is that the Ute Tribe has a significant allotment of Colorado River water, um, but based on the way that allotment is determined, it's been very hard for them to quantify water use within the guidelines of that allotment, and therefore they're not getting the water that is owed to them by the compact and by uh, various negotiations between the states. So it is something to keep an eye out for. Um, if the youths are able to be successful in gaining their rights back towards their ancestral waters uh, and their ancestral lands, uh, it does have a significant ripple effect down downstream for other indigenous tribes and their abilities to uh, have access to their traditional lands and waters. So definitely something worth uh, keeping an eye out for, something I'm watching as I try to connect with with the Ute people and try to get their story uh, for this project.
0: Four, White Mesa.
1: The fourth thing I'm looking at at the moment, uh, and this just came out on Friday the 14th of January, uh, was the EPA decision to prohibit White Mesa Mill from receiving Superfund waste from the country of Estonia. Um, this is a huge uh, win for um, both environmental advocacy within the greater San Juan watershed and the um, Bears Ears area, uh, but also for the indigenous tribes who were the initial ones that started fighting this battle. Uh, much of the decision by the EPA was actually brought about by correspondents from representatives of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, uh, which um, pointed out uh, several issues with the uh, ways that the White Mesa Mill was processing uranium and um, dealing with its radioactive byproducts. Huge win for the Ute people here um, and for anybody who uh, values uh, this landscape. Um, the White Mesa Mill is one of the uh, last remaining uranium bills in the, in the country and it is um, a huge threat to the ecology and the water table and, and the people who live in the Four Corners region um, who rely on the water there to be clean. I'm really happy for the Ute, Mountain U tribe, I'm really happy for the um, indigenous people of the area who don't have to worry about additional radioactive waste coming into their area.
0: Five, the Grand Canyon.
1: The fifth thing that I have on my radar at the moment is taking place up at the north rim of the Grand Canyon, where on the Kaibab Plateau, the National Park Service is undertaking a herd reduction of a bison herd that uh, lives there on the North Rim. Um, Roughly about 500 bison exist in this herd, and they've migrated into the north part of the park from lands up to the north as a way of avoiding um, potential hunting and predation. So they moved into the park and are posing a potential risk, according to the National Park Service, to both uh the visitors of the park and also to the archaeological resources that are up located up in the north rim of the park there interest in this is not necessarily that the park service is working on a herd reduction which they are doing uh, some work with indigenous tribes to pull the bison out of the park and relocate them to areas in oklahoma or wyoming or south dakota where there are indigenous tribes in those areas that will utilize the bison for their cultural needs. Uh, The issue actually that I am concerned with is the fact that the National Park Service is also instituting a program just this past November. They piloted a program where they are inviting volunteers to come in and eliminate the bison by uh, lethal measures. And, kill the bison and remove them that way. They're both hoping that this will be a deterrent for the bison to encroach deeper into the park and then also uh, to hopefully drive the bison away from the park um, so that they don't impact the park to, to the extent that, that they're worried that they will. Uh, this is very reminiscent of the way wildlife management handled the story of the Kaibab deer back in the early 1900s. Um, it was one of the clearest uh, cases and one of like the case studies for mismanagement of wildlife uh, and um, a sort of case point study of uh, the concept of carrying capacity in a landscape interested in this for a number of reasons. Carrying capacity plays into a lot of the conversation that I'm having around um, episode six of this uh, documentary series, Um, but also just from uh, an ecological standpoint, um, this idea of of removing bison is one that has a lot of historical precedent and um, could be uh, a potential source of conflict down the line i'll put a link in the show notes to the national park service website's um, information about this removal project Uh, they're hoping to have it done by 2025 i believe and reduce the population of the herd to around 200 Uh, so lots of interesting stuff there Uh, so something worth following for sure
0: and now the interview
1: um we're going to do for this episode, uh, it's going to be one of my first interviews on the project. It's with Professor Robert Adler, uh, who is a professor at the University of Utah. He is a law professor. He uh, was my second interview uh, that I did back when this project was originally uh, supposed to be a John Wesley Powell sort of bio and... Uh, retrace of the john wesley powell expeditions so you'll hear a number of references to john wesley powell um really interesting conversation this was the first conversation i really had about the colorado river compact uh which is why i wanted to start the podcast with this episode um The Colorado River Compact was formed in 1922 uh, between the seven basin states. Uh, This is the 100 year anniversary of it, even though we don't really seem to be talking about it as such, Uh, the compact really informed a lot of the ways that we talk about the Colorado River and water in the West in general, and is an important sort of jumping off point, I think, for the way I am looking at the river and talking about the river uh, when it comes to uh, some of the ways we manage it uh, in the documentary. So we're going to start off uh, with Robert Adler talking about the compact and some of the legal issues uh, facing the river uh, from an ecological standpoint as well as uh, a social standpoint. We're here with Professor Robert Adler of the University of Utah. Robert Adler is a Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and we are talking to him on November 19th of 2019. Now, Professor Adler, if we could start with just a quick introduction of who you are and your background with the Colorado River. So I am an
2: environmental lawyer and environmental law professor and water law professor, Um, first 15 years of my career, I practiced um, for the state of Pennsylvania and then for NGOs, for Mm -hmm. um, a group called Trustees for Alaska and Alaska, and then for the Natural Resources Defense Council in Washington, D.C. And in those capacities, I worked on water issues a lot. Um, I represented Pennsylvania on Clean Water Act issues. Um, In Alaska, I worked on a lot of river and dam policy, a major lawsuit about whether or not um, they could dam the Susitna River in Mm -hmm. central Alaska. So I really kind of got interested in riparian ecosystem issues from a legal policy, scientific, um, and social um, perspective. Um, At NRDC in Washington, I worked primarily on Clean Water Act issues, so water Mm -hmm. issues. And when I got here to teach in 1994 on you know, what's the biggest aquatic ecosystem in this part of the country um, is the Colorado River. Um, and I started doing something that many environmental and water lawyers don't do, um, which is to try to integrate the different disciplines. So we've got a whole body of water pollution law and a whole bo- body of water rights law, and they're not connected um, for the most part. There are some exceptions, but they're two different bodies of law. So I started trying to teach students to think about not this law or this legal principle in isolation, but what is it that you're trying to accomplish? What you're trying to accomplish is to protect, restore, maintain the integrity of an entire system, an aquatic ecosystem or a perian ecosystem um, from whatever perspective you're thinking about. It might be water supply or it might be protecting the fish or it might be for our, for purposes of recreation. But to think about, you know, the problem you're trying to solve and how the law relates to that, rather than, I'm going to study this law, I'm going to study that law, right? The laws are the tools. What we're there to protect are the aquatic ecosystems. So that's kind of what um, developed my interest in the Colorado River um, as one major model of a kind of integrated whole watershed and ecosystem that supports so many uses and values.
1: So from your perspective, what is the value of the Colorado River to the West as a whole on an economic, social, cultural level? And how does the West rely on the Colorado River outside of just the channel of the river itself?
2: So um, from a human perspective, um, water has always been critical to settlement in the West. You know, starting with Native American populations, we tend to want to think about this starting from Western um, European settlement, but from the perspective of the early original human inhabitants, um, the, um, the Native American um, tribes um, in the arid West, um, you, you can't live without water and, and uh, water is far between relative to other parts of the country. Um, and so settlements would um, congregate around places like, you know, Great Salt Lake and the Colorado River and, and um, the Columbia River um, in the Northwest. And it was the source of food as well as water supply. Um, and so settlements tended to congregate around the rivers. The same was true when Europeans began to invade the West, um, starting with things like fur trapping. Right? Um and where are beavers? They are where the aquatic eco ecosystems um are. Um where are trade routes? It's where there are riparian corridors. Um where could you begin to irrigate? Um it's where you've got um water supply, where with nineteenth century technology you could divert the water sufficiently to irrigate farms and, and to um to use for watering livestock um and so forth. Um Where and how could you mine? You know, there were hard rock mines that didn't require as much water, but a lot of the mining activity required water. Um, Where could you not only cut logs, timber, but get it to market in places where you could float logs down on the river? So just as was true in the eastern United States where development followed, you know, the Ohio River and the Mm -hmm. Mississippi River and so forth development really followed the riparian corridors. Um, In the Southwest, it's particularly arid. It's the most arid part of the United States. Um, And so it was essential for human settlements to um, have um, water supplies um, and everything they could provide. Obviously in terms of later development, um, technology engineering began to come into play and the best way to tame the rivers um, in terms of human utilitarian use of the rivers, was to channelize them, to dam them, and to divert them. Um, and the irony is that that then brought human settlement or allowed human settlement to diverge from riparian areas because you no longer had to settle along the river if you could store and then divert the river away from the riparian corridor.
1: So using this historical Perspective and looking at the value of the river to the cultures along it. What did the West look like prior to 1969, say, when John Wesley Powell first explored the lengths of the Colorado River? And how did his expedition down the river really lend itself to expansion throughout the West and really change the perspective on the West? Powell's expedition
2: did not have immediate relevance. You know, it wasn't like you know, the gold strike in California that brought this immediate onrush of of um, settlers and, and gold miners to the West Coast. Um, it was a somewhat um, crazy expedition, you know, at the time. And he simply wanted to explore an uncharted um, part of the country, what was then um, the least charted remaining part of the continental United States. Right. Um, and he wrote about it. And it you know, it posed great interest for um, people back east. Um, and then later in Powell's career, um, when he was working for the government for the US Geological Survey um, and so forth, he wrote reports on what not only that expedition, but other exploring expeditions that he and others were doing in the West meant for Western settlement. And the insight that it gave Powell was number one, Water's the lifeblood of the region. If you want to bring more settlers, you need to provide them with sufficient water supplies, not just for drinking, but for irrigating crops and watering livestock and conducting other economic activities and so forth. So it informed his perspective with which he tried to inform the perspective of Congress and other decision makers. His primary insight was we should be organizing the West geopolitically around watersheds. That's the logical region within which to manage this critical resource. And of course, he wasn't listened to. So we've got states and counties and city boundaries that are straight artificial lines on the map that ignore um, ecological boundaries, hydrological boundaries, and we've been paying the price for that mistake ever since. So that was kind of the real significance of Powell's expedition. It wasn't that it immediately transformed the West or brought settlers to arid areas that were otherwise not very hospitable or inviting.
1: So you mentioned Powell's original recommendation uh, of organizing states and land management throughout the West in these watershed districts. Um, And we see a little bit of that going on um, in smaller communities throughout the West. Uh, But in a large part, we did wind up going to this square land parcel approach that was originated on the East Coast. What do you feel is the repercussion of that square parcelization um, to land and how has that affected the way we interact with the river and with water in general throughout the West?
2: Right. Well, so, I mean, let's, we can take the Colorado river as an example, but the Colorado river is geographically, you know, a huge um, ecosystem and watershed um, which covers seven states in the United States and two Mexican um, states. Um, and um, it means that we need to manage the shared resource across state boundaries, geopolitical boundaries, which has led to all sorts of legal issues that we can get into later. Um, But watersheds are nested, right? You know, there's, you know, up here in the hill, there's City Creek, which, you know, is a much more, a much smaller um, area and is in one region. Um, If you look at the Bear River, um, it flows through three states, Idaho, Wyoming, and Utah. And so there is a compact involving the Bear River which flows into Great Salt Lake because it crosses three state boundaries. So the implication is that if you had formed a state around the Bear River on um, hydroshed or watershed, right that might have avoided some of the conflict between the states, right? You would manage the the central resource of the west, water, on um, in a single geopolitical boundary.
1: So that then naturally leads into my next question, which is about the Colorado River Compact, uh, which is this agreement between these uh, seven states and Mexico to parcel out the water. Uh, What are the implications of that compact uh, for water management in the West? And what were some of the long reaching effects that we're seeing today, a hundred years later from that compact?
2: So that requires a little bit of legal background. So in the eastern United States, I'm in a system called riparian rights, which we inherited from England, although that's a little bit one-sided because riparian rights law actually developed on both sides of the Atlantic and kind of cross-fertilized back and forth. But basically, an eastern water law doctrine assumes a lot of water and a lot of rivers closely spaced, right? And the basic doctrine is if you own a riparian piece of land, if you own a piece of land um, that abuts a water body or through which a water body flows or exists in the case of a lake or a pond, you have a water right. You've got the right to use that water for, um, you know, reasonable uses so long as you leave the water unimpaired in quality or quantity for downstream users shared use. And if you imagine, you know, a bucolic English countryside with five farmers on an abundant stream, it's not a big problem, right? You all have the right to use the water for your crops and your livestock or whatever, you, and drinking water and culinary uses, so long as you don't hurt anyone else. right? in the East, that began to break down a bit with the Industrial um, Revolution, mill uses that harmed downstream users on And so they had to modify a riparian rights law a little bit um, to make sure that there was a balance of interest between competing users of the river. Okay, now move west, right, where you've got far fewer rivers. Um, Many of them are intermittent. You know, they're dry parts of the year and wet parts of the year. Um, And you want to bring a lot of settlement. And there's not necessarily as much water to go around and where there's not necessarily enough land in the riparian area. People wanna settle and have farms and ranches outside the riparian area. Riparian rights law doesn't work, right? So what developed was what we call the prior appropriation doctrine, which says that someone can obtain a water right, whether or not they own a piece of riparian land. If they divert water from a natural water source and put it to a beneficial use. And here's the key from your perspective on um, first in time, first and right. Whereas in riparian rights law, there was equal sharing and equal um, kind of um, balancing of rights no matter who got there first. In the West, prior appropriation says whoever diverted water first for and put it to beneficial use has priority of right. Right. So now in the Colorado River Basin, first major users were farmers in Southern California in the Imperial Valley um, in particular, and they started using a lot of water, okay Most of the western states had firmly adopted the prior appropriation doctrine. States that were growing more slowly, like Utah and Wyoming and Colorado, were afraid that California would suck up all, of the water rights on the Colorado River. Um, And as it happens, also in 1922, the US Supreme Court um, decided a case between um, Colorado and Wyoming, in which the court said prior appropriation law applies between two prior appropriation states. California accepted prior appropriation doctrine and Colorado accepted prior appropriation doctrine and Southern California grew a lot quicker than Colorado. And all the water rights, the priority would go to California, right? So the what we call the upper basin states had a huge incentive to try to negotiate a deal, to try to ag- negotiate a compact that would ensure that the upper basin would have enough water for their own growth and development at the time that they developed, right? Why should California come to the Able. When they're in the driver's seat, they've got prior appropriation law on their side. Um, they've, got, um, they've got development um, uh, capacity, capital population on their side. Well, the problem is that the Colorado River is doesn't think in human terms, right? Um, it floods when there's a flood year. Um, it floods in certain times of year, um, and it's dry in other times of year. And there are um, cycles of relative wetness and relative aridity. So times when there's enough water and times when there's not enough water. So California needed federal help to build infrastructure. Um, Number one, there was a canal through Mexico, um, which was fraught with political um, problems um, at around the turn of the century and shortly thereafter. And so California wanted a more secure water supply in the form of an all-American canal, a canal from the Colorado um, to their farming areas completely north of the border, completely on the U.S. side of the border. Number two, the river was flooding um, in ways that would blow out their um, diversion structures on the, on the river and also flood human settlement areas. Um, so they wanted dams they wanted massive dams that would do a couple of things one is to store water in the dry uh, in the wet years um, so that there would be water available in the dry years and number two to control the flooding downstream um, but a single state didn't have the financial and um, other capability um, to build such a dam and Congress said with some wisdom, We are not going to provide federal funding for these massive water projects until we know that the Colorado River basin states have gotten together and divided up the river. We don't want to build this federal um, infrastructure for the benefit of one state at the expense of the other. We want you to sit down and work it out. That gave all of the basin states an incentive to sit down and negotiate. And in particular, it brought California to the table. Right. So on um, what did each side of the bargaining table um, get out of a compact. Well, I, I guess I should say that the original intent was to allocate the water among all seven basin states, X for Colorado, Y for Wyoming, Z for Utah, um, etc. Um, and they couldn't accomplish that in 1922. What they could accomplish was to divide the water between what's known as the upper basin and the lower basin. And so the upper basin is defined as the entire watershed upstream of an artificial point on the river called Lee Ferry, which is now several miles downstream of Glen Canyon Dam. So everywhere in which water flows into the Colorado upstream of that point is the upper basin, and everywhere that from which water flows into the river Downstream of Lee Ferry is in the lower basin. That does not follow um, state lines exactly. So you also have the upper division states and the lower division states. The lower division states are California, Nevada, and Arizona. The upper division states are Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, New Mexico. Um, and, um, And so they cut the steel, dividing up the river between them. What California got out of the deal was an assurance of a certain minimum flow of water downstream to meet their existing and potential future water rights and needs. What the upper basin states got was their own guaranteed share of the river if there's enough water to go around, and we should talk about that later. Mm -hmm. But they also got a hedge against prior appropriation. Right. Under normal prior appropriation law, if they didn't develop fast enough, they being the upper basin states, they'd lose out. This gave the upper basin states time to develop without fear of losing all their water.
1: Where does the flooding of the early 1900s factor into the Colorado River Compact, uh, particularly the the catastrophic floods caused uh by the meandering of the Colorado River that wound up sublimating the Salton and Sink and um, creating the Salton Sea uh, that exists in Southern California today. Where did those events line up on the timeline and how did those initiate a lot of the decisions made with the Colorado River Compact?
2: Um, it was before. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I talked about how the unruly river, um, and the fact that humans thought the river needed to be tamed for purposes of human settlement, that was one major impetus for these major infrastructure improvements, changes. Improvements yeah. is a evaluated term. Changes right. to the river to protect the, um, the floodplains and other areas from flooding of the river.
1: So legally and politically the river was separated into these two basins, this upper and lower basin. But ecologically, it's still one basin. Ecologically
2: and hydrologically.
1: Yes. And so what were the impacts of this split, this division between upper and lower basins to the river uh, on both a hydrological and ecological basis, uh, but also on a legal um, basis? how did that split sort of manifest down the line for the way we look at the Colorado river and the way we manage the Colorado
2: river? So um, let's talk first ecologically um, because, you know, part of the raison d'etre for the compact was to, um, for Congress to provide the funding and the federal wherewithal to build, you know, the, what's now the Hoover dam. Then later, All the water projects up and down the river, the Glen Canyon Dam and Flaming Gorge and dozens of water projects in the river, which has converted what was a free-flowing river and aquatic ecosystem into a series of step pools up and down the river. Um, There are some stretches of the river that are relatively free-flowing and relatively wild, but as a whole, it's one of the most managed ecosystems, uh, aquatic ecosystems on Earth in terms of changing the flow patterns. Um, And that changed dramatically um, the nature of the aquatic ecosystem, um, in my view, for the worse. You know, that's, again, a valued judgment. Um, But it um, prevented fish migration. Mm -hmm. It prevented um, migration of sediment um, downstream, which is critical for, you know, the The um, side channels and the eddies and the areas in which um, some of the um, aquatic fish species, um, all fish species are aquatic, some of the fish species spawn and rear on their young. Um, So it it caused tremendous change to the aquatic ecosystem, Um, not just in terms of water flow, but in terms of sediment flow, flow of food sources downstream. Um, Obviously, it converted um, large stretches of the river into lakes rather than riparian systems. Um, it evened out the flow. The natural ecosystem, if you think about it, um, most of the flow in the Colorado comes from snowmelt, um, which means that large flows in the spring subsiding during the summer and then lower in different parts of the year. Um, and the aquatic ecosystem evolved You know to, um, to survive and to thrive in that ecosystem. And then we changed it dramatically in the period of, you know, a couple of decades. Um, And that's why we've got um, uh, endangered fish species or extirpated um, fish species in different parts of the river. So ecologically, the impact of the compact, which facilitated the development of the river, was dramatic. Um, Socially and politically, um, the compact did a good thing in the sense that it did bring the parties to the table and established a framework for peaceful dispute resolution regarding the river for many, many years, Um, but it also left a lot of questions um, unanswered. Um, And as a result of which, um, Arizona sued four times in the U.S. Supreme Court, um, leading to the major U.S. Supreme Court um, decision in the early 1960s in Arizona v. California interpreting what, in part what the compact means um, mainly what the Boulder Canyon Project Act the statute that authorized building the um, Hoover Dam and the All-American Canal um, and the fighting hasn't stopped mm. um, the fighting is increasingly um, or the dispute resolution I should say is increasingly collaborative in which the states are trying to find mutually acceptable solutions um, to problems within the framework of the compact. Um, But it has still created this framework in which each state is trying to maximize its interest in the river. Um, So that's kind of social and political implications number one. Um, Social political implications number two is who's at the table and who's not at the table. Right. Because the compact was negotiated between the seven basin states and the federal government. And to this day, most of the major decisions regarding use and management of the Colorado River um, reflect the interests of the seven states and the federal government. Right. Who's left out? Native American tribes, mm-hmm. you know, who have tremendous interests in water from the river um, increasingly values that we didn't really think about very much in 1922, like ecological values, like recreational uses and values of the river. So those non-consumptive user groups are not formally, you know, sitting at the table in Colorado river management decisions. And third, the the other country downstream, which is Mexico. Um, And when the compact was written, we had no agreement whatsoever with Mexico about what their share of the river should be. Mm-hmm. Now, let's use 15 million acre-feet a year as a kind of rough approximation of the flow um, of the river. And, you know, much or all of that reached Mexico before we started damming and diverting the river. Now, Mexico's rights are 1.5 million acre-feet, roughly about a tenth the flow of the river. But that wasn't envisioned in the compact at all. Mm -hmm. All the compact said was at the point at which the United States does, or if it does reach an accord with Mexico, um, those obligations will be borne roughly equally between the upper basin and the lower basin. So it wasn't until 1944 um, during World War II that we negotiated a treaty with Mexico regarding the river. Um, And there's something called the International... um, um, uh, boundary and Water Commission um, in which Mexico and the United States discusses and comes up with resolutions of different disputes about the river. Um, but that's separate and aside from the main decision-making about what how water is used and managed in the Colorado River north of the border. And by the time you get to the border, it's kind of too late.
1: And of course, the Colorado River no longer meets the sea at its delta, uh, which has, in turn, a huge ecological impact down into the Sea of Cortez there.
2: Environmental impact um, and also sociological
1: impact right. on yeah.
2: the Cocopai and other Cocopai um, Indians in Mexico and other users of that right. ecosystem.
1: So with the benefit of hindsight, what are some of the issues that we're seeing with the Colorado River Compact? And what are some of the repercussions of the original compact and the decisions made there to current management and current operations along the Colorado River and our ability to coexist with it?
2: Um, number one, they thought they had an ample hydrologic record because at the time they thought, well, 20 years is a lot of data. Right. We now know that's a blip in time and that the river follows cycles that are much longer. Um, And we also know that um, since that time, um, the amount of water in the river has gone down dramatically. And we know that um, if you go further back in geologic history, and we know this from tree ring analysis, there were periods of much lower flows, longer, deeper drought periods in the Colorado. So we doled out um, a certain amount of water. I could get into the numbers if you want. Um, and there really isn't that much water in the river. So at some point um, in history, we knew there would be a crossover point where demand for water and water supply would cross over. And we have reached that point, mm-hmm. right? That was before climate change. Um, droughts in the past have, and this, a lot of good science recently on uh, documenting this. Droughts in the past have been due to variation in precipitation, but temperature is also important. And it turns out that the roughly 20-year drought that we've been going through um, in the Colorado River Basin and um, uh, recently is largely driven by rising temperatures. So Brad Udall and um, Jonathan Overpeck um, have um, published a number of papers explaining how the current reductions in flows in the Colorado River are explained a lot more due to rising temperatures than due to precipitation. It's due to a change in the percentage of precipitation that comes in the form of rainfall rather than snow. Mm -hmm. Um, It's due to the um, relationship between groundwater um, and surface water and soil moisture. Um, It's due to evaporation and transpiration, evapotranspiration, Of water and how much gets, you know, uh, sent up into the atmosphere and then Mm -hmm. blown out across the Great Plains. Um, So there's a number of factors. Um, And that's important because there remains a debate about whether climate change is going to result in more or less precipitation in the northern Colorado River Basin, particularly in the mountains, which is the main source of water supply through the snowpack. And what Udall and Overpeck's work is showing is that to some degree that doesn't matter, doesn't matter so long as temperatures continue to rise, which means that the water supply, which we already think is inadequate, is going to go down. Now, what does that compact water supply allocation not take into account? It doesn't take into account all of the Native American water rights, Mm -hmm. right? Not all, all of which have been resolved. the basin, there are massive um, uh, unresolved disagreements about how much water the Navajo Nation um, deserves from the river and so forth. Um, Native American, what what are called reserved rights, federal reserved water rights, come out of each state's allocation, right? Um, And so at some point that's going to result um, or might result in a major, um, major problem. Um, The second thing the compact doesn't really take into account is in-stream needs and uses. It doesn't treat the river as a river. It treats it as a large water supply plumbing system. Um, But fish need water. Um, Riparian vegetation needs water. The entire uh, aquatic bird species um, or water-dependent bird species need water. Um, And so the compact doesn't say we need to reserve a certain amount in the river at these particular places in order to support ecological uses and values. And that's a very complicated scientific undertaking just to understand how much water is needed where and when and in what quantity and with what sediment loads and so forth to support different parts of the ecosystem. So, you know, immense challenges in terms of how much water who gets it, and for what purpose.
1: Right. So from your perspective then, uh, what do you feel like are some of the solutions to this problem uh, with the compact in particular? And then do you even feel like there are solutions to the the way we manage the river and the way we interact with the river? So there
2: are solutions. Okay. Um, um, there's no single, single uh, silver bullet right. um, solution here. Um but the biggest has to be number one, um we can't sanction um major new withdrawals from the Colorado. Um to me that's just insane. And, and this controversies and I'm not you know, this is not a popular view here in Utah, yeah. um where southwestern Utah wants to build um a new pipeline, the Lake Powell pipeline, um from Lake Powell to Washington County, um which is the fastest growing um area of the state. Um And, you know, huge, expensive, um, disruptive project when there may not be enough water um, to fill it. Um, Is that financially smart? Is it environmentally smart? Is it it hydrologically smart? Um, I would question that. Um, Other proposals to build um, a huge pipeline um, further north um, to the Front Range in Colorado um, from the Green River part um, of the watershed, um, I would argue that's not a wise thing to do when we already don't have um, enough water to go around. Um, So number one, stop the bleeding, as it were, um, by, you know, putting a moratorium on future diversions. Um, Controversial, because of what I told you earlier, which is the whole thing the upper basin got out of the deal and the compact was that they could develop more slowly. Mm -hmm. And so now we come in and say, sorry you developed too late, you don't get um, enough water, which means that you've got to resolve that issue by perhaps um, mitigating water use or lowering water use in the lower basin so that there can be some parity
3: there. Right.
2: Okay. Number two, we've just got to use water more efficiently in the basin. Um, we live in a desert, right? Um, and so um, if there's not, not enough water to go around, we need to think about things like what crops we grow and where, um, and whether we're using water um, in a subsidized way um, that um, produces economic inefficiencies that encourage us to grow alfalfa um, or multiple cuttings of alfalfa in places um, where it ought not to happen, Mm -hmm. right? So we need to think about living within the limits of the water supply that nature provides us in this part of the world um, and that due to our own actions, are going to be diminishing over time.
1: So how then, in your opinion, do we balance the needs of these growing urban population centers, uh, particularly Phoenix and Las Vegas and Los Angeles and San Diego, uh, on the downstream side of things, uh, with the needs of agricultural uh, producers, uh, whether it's in the upper basin or the lower basin, and how do we how do we find that balance uh, between population growth and the needs to grow the food that is required to feed that population growth?
2: So let me give you a radical philosophical answer, yeah. and then a more pragmatic, um, uh, answer, uh, yeah. and perhaps politically um more astute answer. Okay. Uh, the the radical philosophical um question. Is why is it that we always assume that growth is good, mm-hmm. and why is it that we always assume that growth is inevitable? Um, there may be parts in the con- of the country which, in a climate change scenario, are getting more water, um, and perhaps more people ought to locate there, and that's where development ought to occur. Um, human populations at some point need to accept some limits. You know, it's you know we can't manufacture water out of nothing. Right. Um, we can use water more wisely. Um, And that leads to the more pragmatic and economically based answer, um, which is we're currently using water um, in ways that I don't think are economically efficient because we subsidize them, right? Um, Water markets can allow us to transfer water from currently inefficient places and uses to more efficient places and uses. So if Southern California cities are growing, and water is more valuable there, and Los Angeles and San Diego and other Southern California cities are willing to pay to transfer more water um, from, um, from current users that are inefficient. Those sorts of exchanges can, to some degree, accommodate growth um, in ways that don't make us use more water. Um, it simply allows us to use the water more efficiently. mm mm-hmm. The solution that we can't have is to continue to desiccate the river because that's just going to exacerbate um, an environmental um, catastrophe that we've already caused
3: for the
1: river. So how then do you have that conversation with those people who are advocating for more water use, more demand? How do you have that conversation with them and actually convince them that the answer is actually less water? We need to find ways to use less.
2: So, um, you can try to persuade using moral suasion, right. you know, and that works with some people, but not with others. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those um, who are not convinced by the fact that, you know, the native fish species deserve um, uh, to exist um, and to thrive in the river, um, those who do not buy into that argument, you can persuade through economics. Um, by pricing water um, properly, um, by having um, in-stream water rights um, that um, basically create a cap on how much human um, off-stream water use is possible from the Colorado or any um, river system. Um, to some extent, it comes down to society as a whole and its values about what we think is important about the Colorado and other, other rivers. Are they nothing more than you know, plumbing systems for human use, um, or are they living systems that we've got an ethical and legal obligation to protect? And therefore, we need to find ways to accommodate human economic welfare, which is important. Mm-hmm. And I don't at all mean to minimize that, but in ways that are compatible with the ecological health of the system as well.
1: Right. Okay. So, do you feel like there's a possibility of reaching an equilibrium point? with the Colorado River where it's both a healthy and functioning ecosystem and provides water for all the needs of the users the human users in the southwest. Well, I certainly hope so. Um
2: and I want to be optimistic about it. Um we have not completely destroyed um the Colorado River and its ecosystems and you know you'll hear hyperbole on both sides. Right. Um, If it were completely destroyed, it would be a lost cause, right? right? You know, and and, um, we can recover um, many of the fish species and many of the ecosystems. We're not going to turn it back to what it was before John Wesley Powell, you know, um, explored the river in 1869. But we can restore um, many aspects of the ecosystem, and we're working on it.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, We're working on a piecemeal, you know. So we've got one restoration system up in the upper Colorado River, and one in the Grand Canyon Reach, and one in the lower Colorado River. Um, I would argue that we need to integrate our management of the river in in a more comprehensive way. Um, The Chesapeake Bay has an entire management program that covers the entire watershed. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of local decision-making in different parts of the watershed, but that's integrated within the broader framework of the Chesapeake Bay program. Why do do we not have a Colorado River program? Uh, You know, why do we not have a single management um, entity that can look at the impact of what happens upstream um, in the center and the downstream, and then south of the border? Um, So I I have hope, but I do think we need to um, build the kinds of institutional structures that can manage the river um, through its entire watershed um, across all of the users and interests and uses and values um, of the river. And that looks at um, the problems from an interdisciplinary perspective, science, law, economics, sociology, and tries to put them all together.
1: What is the correlation between land management and water management in the Colorado basin? And how does the way that we manage land in the Southwest and the West in general how does that inform the way that we interact with water uh, in the same areas so
2: you cannot separate land management from water management they're integrated mm-hmm. they have to be integrated um, from multiple perspectives one is that you know a river doesn't you know just uh, exist within fixed boundaries it floods it you know ebbs and flows it's connected to groundwater it's part of a broader Um, hydrological system that reflects more than the river per se. Um, Number two, everything we do on land affects the water within a watershed, right? Whether we grow crops or whether we um, build urban and suburban areas um, in which we create impervious surfaces that change the flow patterns into rivers, that add more pollutant flows into rivers, every land use decision within a watershed affects the health of the aquatic ecosystem. Um, So yes, um, um, an aquatic ecosystem, watershed management program, again, like the Chesapeake Bay program, has to account for what we do on land, by whom and where. Currently, it's not that way. We've got, you know, there is some consideration of land use and water issues, but it's pretty segregated from a management um, perspective.
1: So looking at this original map that John Wesley Powell drew uh during his time with the usgs that recommended this sort of watershed allotment of uh of land based on the the shape of the uh of the river flows within the west how does that map sort of inform the way we interact with water now not necessarily that we can sort of redraw the state lines based on it but is there a way that we can look at watershed management in a more holistic sense to sort of incorporate some of those original ideas uh, and maybe mitigate some of the issues that we're seeing in the West with the way water is handled across these state boundaries?
2: So um, you're absolutely right. We're not going to rewrite the map of the United States at this point. We're not right. going to you know create state boundaries along watershed lines, and that's just you know kind of... An interesting, uh, perhaps wise um, idea of the past that didn't come to pass. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can create watershed commissions, um, and we have to some degree, um, and we have in many parts of the country, um, some in the West, some in the East, some in the uh, Great Lakes states and so forth, in which you create decision-making bodies that have representatives from each of the effective, um, affected government entities, states and cities and and so forth, Um, but that also take into account other user groups and interests, you know, users of the water supply, farmers and ranchers and, you know, other economic um, users of the water and non-consumptive users um, and local residents who, you know, live near and recreate in, in and enjoy.
1: A quick editor's note, at this point, the audio dropped out during our interview and Professor Adler and I started chatting while I changed the SD card in my camera. And uh, as we were chatting, we were talking about the city of Las Vegas and its water use. And that is where we're going to pick up. And you probably know that when the compact
2: was written, Vegas was like a little sleepy, dusty right. mail stop. You know? yeah. v- Vegas <laughs> is actually not drawing more because um, Nevada's entire compact allocation we never got into the details of the compact. After they divided, um, you know, between the upper basin and the lower basin, and basically it's seven and a half million acres of beneficial consumptive use um, per year, um, entitlement for the upper basin and the lower basin. The lower basin also is entitled to an additional million acre feed, if available. That's 16 million acre feed. Um, and there's a provision. This was... Remember, I talked about what California gets out of it, the guaranteed flow. Um, There's a provision that requires the upper basin to, how you phrase it depends on which lawyers you talk to in the upper basin and the lower basin. So either not to do anything to prevent a rolling 10-year average of 75 million acre feet to pass at leaf Ferry, okay? okay, or to ensure that, seven and a half million acre feet on pass at Lee Ferry, right? So the compact itself <clears throat> only divided the river in two with a potential future allocation for Mexico. Mm-hmm. And then they left it up to the upper basin and the lower basin respectively to divide the water among themselves. The upper basin states were able to come to the table on and in the upper Colorado River Basin compact, They divided the river by percentage because they didn't know if enough water would be available for the full um, upper basin allocation. So Colorado has a certain percentage, Utah has a certain percentage, and so forth. The lower basin states were at each other's throats. And I talked about the Supreme Court litigation. And ultimately, as a result of congressional legislation as interpreted by the Supreme Court, There are numeric allocations for California, Nevada, Arizona. Arizona has only 300,000 acre feet Mm -hmm. because at the time this was all negotiated, they didn't have very many people. And again, Nevada was a blip on the map. They didn't know it was going to be this huge water thirsty um, metropolis. Um, And so um, Las Vegas gets its water from a lot of other
1: supplies as well. So how do we incorporate historical situations in our ways of thinking? Uh, And I'm thinking particularly in the Owens Valley in California and the draining of that valley in order to provide water for the city of Los Angeles. How does a situation like that inform the way we deal with the Colorado? And is there anything we can take from that uh, to better manage a larger system like the Colorado River into the future, so we don't make some of those same mistakes.
2: One hopes that we would learn to um, that we would learn from history, but we yeah. don't always um, learn from history. Um, you know, the Owens um, Valley and further north um, diversions of water to Los Angeles resulted in oh, you know, an ecological. Um, nightmare for those parts of the country, a public health nightmare for those parts of the country, an economic nightmare for those parts of the country. Um, and um, so we do need to think about this issue of diversions of water from place A to place B,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? Should, as um, Mark Reisner said, money flow uphold to money, you know, is that all we should think about? Or should we think about the welfare of the source areas? Okay. And this is a major issue in Western water law um, generally. It may be economically efficient, right, to have um, those for whom water has a higher value pay to transfer that water to where they want to use it. But it's got sociological impacts, socioeconomic impacts as well that, yes, we should um, think about and learn about.
1: So what are some of the consequences in your eyes of failure to act and to change our course in the way that we deal with the Colorado?
2: So um, there's a lot of different parts to the answer to that question. Um, Legally, um, at some point, um, let me back up. Um, The basin states and the federal government know that water supplies relative to demand. Um, have um, are experiencing a mismatch. And they've negotiated agreements, some fairly complex, sophisticated agreements whereby the states have agreed to curtail water use based on declining levels in Lake Mead and Lake Powell, mm-hmm. right? So to some degree, um, the states and the federal government are doing a pretty good job of coming up with ways to manage shortages within the letter and spirit of the Colorado River Compact. Right, so far so good. At some point, if water supplies to continue to diminish, and if we continue to insist on growing in the basin, that kind of administrative solution, negotiated solution, may longer may no longer be enough. Um, at that point, we may be back in major litigation, um, which is expensive. It's uncertain. Um, It arguably benefits no one but water lawyers who make a lot of money um, litigating these cases. Um, And that can be a a legal and political um, nightmare just in terms of the uncertainty that it poses for water users in the basin. So that's something that we really ought to try to avoid um, if at all possible. And again, I think the basin states and others are working hard to try to negotiate agreements that accomplish that. Mm -hmm. If there's a point, at which there's not enough water to go around, either that's going to curtail economic development in the region. You know, and as I said earlier, philosophically, maybe that's okay. Maybe we just need to accept that there's only so many people who can live um, in this watershed um, at least while maintaining a particular lifestyle, and that's okay. Or the politics will be such where those with a lot of money and power will be able to overcome the environmental management regime and statutes and regulations that are designed to protect the river, the ecosystem, and the species. And we will support economic development, but at a great cost, Mm -hmm. at the cost of the integrity of that incredible aquatic ecosystem.
1: Now, from your personal perspective then, do you feel like it's within the American mindset to be able to accept that change and, and to be, be able to incorporate the changes that need to happen to the river in order to have this sort of balance with it.
2: Yes. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, you know, say what you will about um, the United States and its economic growth and what it's done to its environmental resources. We were also the nation that developed the national park system, mm-hmm. which has been emulated around the world. We are also the nation that passed some of the major seminal environmental statutes, National Environmental Policy, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. and They haven't been perfect, but they have you know, succeeded to a great degree in not um, eliminating environmental harm, but reducing environmental harm while still supporting economic growth. So do we have it in us? Yes, we
1: do. We just need to pay attention. So what then do you feel is the is the viability for things like dam removal uh, to improve the ecological health of of the river? Uh, Particularly Glen Canyon Dam is the one that keeps being brought up uh, as a leading candidate for dam removal.
2: Physically, um, dam removal is certainly possible. It's happening around the country. It's happening in Mm -hmm. the Pacific Northwest to restore salmon runs. It's um, happening in Maine and other parts of the Northeast. Um, so we have the technology, although it can be challenging. And the bigger the dam, you know, the more challenging it is to do it in a responsible way that doesn't create as much harm as it as it prevents. Um, politically, um, it's a question of whose water is lost as a result. Right. Um, now, one thing to understand is that there's actually a trade-off um, in storing water in reservoirs between evaporative loss um, and seepage loss um, and the amount of um, benefit you get from storing water. And my understanding, and you should really talk to a hydrologist mm-hmm. about this, is that we're already at the point we're building more dams on the Colorado, especially with declining amounts of water, um, is counterproductive. We end up losing more water than we gain through um, the storage. Um, if you think about those two big bathtubs, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, Mm -hmm. both being half full, then you're probably creating a higher percentage of evaporative surface area relative to the storage capacity. And there's an argument that you might be better off decommissioning one of the two reservoirs and having all the storage in one of them. They've been roughly at half capacity, a little more, a little less in any given year, Um, for roughly 20 years, right? And that strikes me as insane. And the main reason for Lake Powell, for the Glen Canyon Dam, you know, it produces power and does other things, but the main reason is to enable the upper basin states to meet that compact obligation of a rolling average of 75 million acre feet every 10 years. And um, so there's no other raison d'etre. There's not like a huge water user community in the vicinity of Lake Powell, right? So could you decommission Lake Powell and still operate and manage the system? Probably. Should you take down that dam? That's a lot more complicated um, problem. What if water flows go up again, right? And you do need the flood control and you need the capacity. Um, That depends a lot on perspective Um, and a lot of values there because there are some very sincere valid arguments that we lost a huge ecological treasure Mm -hmm. that's now um, buried under or um, uh, submerged under Lake Powell.
1: So the nature of the Colorado River is one that picks up a lot of sediment from the surrounding landscape. It's how it got its name. Uh, How does the accumulation of that sediment wind up expediting or speeding up this sort of the failure of these dams, um, and particularly Glen Canyon Dam again, how does how that sedimentation sort of accelerate the, the need or the possibility that those dams will need to be removed? So some of the early dams
2: in the lower mm-hmm. um, Colorado filled up almost as soon as they were built mm-hmm. with sediment um, because there, was no, there weren't any major dams
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, to control the sediment flow downstream, and that was one of the major um, functions of um, the Hoover Dam. Um, It was then the Boulder Canyon um, Dam. Um, Eventually, um, if we don't actually dredge them, which is an incredible engineering undertaking, and then you've got to figure out where to um, dump all this polluted sediment, if we don't do that, sure, eventually those dams will fill up. Mm -hmm. And that's just physics, right, and um, uh, hydrology. If the sediment has nowhere else to go, it's going to keep accumulating. It's yeah. going to, right? It's you know, yeah. it's, it's just, just, just physical naked. reality. There's a lot of dispute about how long it will take, right. and I'm not qualified to engage in that course, discourse. Yeah. But yeah. what I do know is that yes, if you don't move the sediment and it keeps coming in, eventually it'll yeah. go up. It's just a question of rate. It's yeah. a question of
1: And there it is. That's our first interview. So I wanted to thank Robert Adler. Uh, for his willingness to talk with me. I'm hoping to connect with uh, Professor Adler again uh, down the line to uh, continue our conversation and perhaps uh, follow up with him uh, now that a couple of years have passed and I've got a little bit more of an understanding for um, the river and the way we are, we interact with it in the West. Um, going to be back in two weeks uh, with another episode. Um, not sure yet which interview that's going to be um but uh stay tuned on social media and uh, follow along if you like the episode and wanted to hear more um we are going to be at this for a long time and we'll have a lot of content to put out there in the coming weeks and months and years so uh, i'm excited to to help add to the conversation and to help share information about the Colorado River that is so important to me and so important to many um, and so crucial to life in the the American West. So uh, I'll sign off now, um, but thank you for listening and I will talk to you guys in two weeks.
0: For more information about this podcast or Blood of the West, visit our website at www.bloodofthewest.com. Blood of the West is a Cairnstone Films production. Cairnstone Films is operating as a 501c3 nonprofit production company. All proceeds beyond the production costs of the documentary will be directed toward the indigenous tribes of the Colorado River watershed to assist in their efforts to ensure reliable and equitable access to their ancestral lands and waters. To follow along with our production, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Blood of the West.